Mama, what's a podcast? Well, it's when a group of men love their opinions very much. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of Feminist Talk Religion. My name is Sarah Emanuel. I am currently visiting assistant professor of religious studies at Colby College and will be joining the Department of Theological Studies as assistant professor of New Testament in fall 2020. Today, we are joined by Tori Paquette, a senior Jewish studies major at Colby College. Tori, thank you for joining us today and welcome to FTR. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. I just like to jump in and, you know, give you space uh, to introduce yourself a little bit more than just your name and your major. Can you tell us, you know, who you are, um, a little bit about yourself? Sure, yeah. I, so I'm a Jewish studies major and creative writing minor at Colby College. I'm hoping to become a pastor in the next few years, so I'm going to Princeton Theological Seminary in the fall, assuming that this Congratulations. Is, <laughs> thank you. Assuming that everything is returned to normal by then. I guess a little bit about me. So I grew up evangelical and have recently left. I was homeschooled my whole life. And I, I'm a writer. I really enjoy writing, art, those kinds of creative things. Okay, awesome. Can you tell us a little bit more about what it means to you when you say, I grew up evangelical? Sure, yeah. So my parents were like got swept up in the evangelical movement of the 90s, I would say. And so they homeschooled my younger brother and I all the way through. So I graduated from high school as a homeschooler uh, and came to Colby without having actually been to, like, attended another school before. And that was, like, a big part of, like, homeschooling for them was, was very much an evangelical thing. Like, they wanted to protect us from things we would be taught in school, like, about sex and drugs and evolution. Like, it was, uh, it was a very much a religious education. So what would you say were some of the most basic or, and I don't mean basic in terms of like simple or not important, but basic as in like fundamental, the fundamental principles of your upbringing? For sure. So I think the biggest thing is like you have to believe in Jesus to be saved and not go to hell. That's kind of like the crux of the movement. So that was like a really big factor in the way I talked to my friends, especially friends who weren't Christian uh, and thought about the world. And also the Bible is the inspired word of God. So you take everything to be authoritative and you base all of your decisions about the world and how to view view history and science through that lens. So what does it mean, you know, especially for those who aren't raised with Jesus as, as part of their world, or even for those who are, what does it mean or what did it mean for you growing up to say, okay, I believe in Jesus and therefore I'm not going to hell. Or in order to not go to hell, you need to believe in Jesus. What does believing in Jesus entail? Right. So I think mostly entailed like kind of a moral way of living. And also like we would use the phrase a personal personal relationship with God a lot. So like, do you have an active prayer life? Are, are you reading your Bible on a regular basis? Are you going to church? Like all of those things are kind of measures of how much you believe, I guess, or how much a part of your life it is. Does that answer the question? Yeah, yeah. So is it enough to simply say, yes, I believe that Jesus is the Christ to not go to hell? Or is there, I'm hearing you say there has to be more to that. There has to be some sort of particular way of living in addition to believing that Jesus is the Christ. 
Right. It's complicated because we say like, that's the one thing you have to do is say you believe, but it's definitely an open question about like, is that belief actually playing out in your life? And if it's not affecting the way you live, then are you actually somebody who believes in Jesus? So on the front, it looks like it's, it's just belief, but that belief has a lot of other expectations, especially if you're participating in the community. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And let's talk about your community. What did community look like and feel like to you? I know you said that you were homeschooled alongside your brother, but what did your larger family community look like? The community in your town, the community in your homeschooling networks? What what was sort of the the feel to that? Who Who was your community in different types of spaces? It definitely changed over time. So like the first 10 years of my life, my family was very involved in um, church locally, and there were probably a couple hundred people there and a lot of children and families. So that was like a very active, I guess, participation in Christian culture. Then my family left the church when I was 10 or 11, and we started like a a home church of sorts. And so that, that really shifted. Like I still had my homeschool community, and pretty much everybody in my homeschool community was Christian but my actual like religious life got much smaller. There were probably only 15 to 20 people in our home church. Okay. And where was your home church located? In my house. And where, where was your house? Where, yeah, yeah. Where we live in Rochester, Rochester, New Hampshire. So New Hampshire is kind of interesting in that like it has a very tiny evangelical community, but it didn't feel that way to me because those were the people I interacted with all the time. Like there are a few hundred homeschoolers in my area and a few hundred evangelicals. So that was just the world that we ran in. And so how big was your wider homeschooling community? I mean, did it expand beyond New Hampshire? Mm, Not really. We pretty much just stuck with people in New Hampshire. But there there would be people who would drive from like an hour away to come to homeschool prom or homeschool book sales, those kinds of things. Were any classes done online or were you really just sort of one-on-one with teachers with inside your own home? We did homeschool co-ops so we'd have classes of like 10 to 20 homeschool students that would be taught by different moms and then I also did online college classes in high school. Oh really and what was that like for your caregivers? Where what was the college and did that feel to your family as something that was okay? Yeah, it was encouraged. So it was a, it was Southern New Hampshire University. So they were, they're pretty simple online courses. And really, I was just trying to get college credits out of the way. But honestly, most of the material I did was on the computer or online, simply because in high school, it's harder for parents to teach that material. So I watched a lot of video lectures. Okay, but that was encouraged. Okay, didn't, you know, ruffle any feathers within your home community. For sure. Yeah. I was only taking creative writing and communication, so they weren't like controversial topics. Okay. Okay. So I'm, I'm curious about, I mean, this might be a good segue to sort of talk about your life in relation to the foundations of this podcast, um, which is called Feminists Talk Religion. It's interesting that you said with regards to the co-op that moms are the ones who are teaching. So can you say a little bit more about that? What I, I, cause I think there's a lot to unpack there, not just sort of like why moms, but also within your community, what did it mean to be a mom? I'm sort of thinking about how you said, yeah, on the one hand, belief is sort of this primary tenant for your evangelical community, but at the same time, there's so much to that. So I sort of have this inkling that to be a mom within your community means so much like there what does it mean to be 
you know, a quote unquote good mom? What, what is family life? What is it like for women? What does it mean to be a mom? Why are the moms doing the teaching? So on and so forth. Yeah, I remember very few working moms, like pretty much every mom I knew was a stay at home mom. So that meant like cooking and cleaning and also running the homeschool, everything, you know, all of the classes and activities and coordinating with other moms and the dads pretty much all worked. There was there was one dad in our homeschool co-op who was the, I guess, lead homeschool teacher in his family and he would teach classes, but that was pretty abnormal, I would say. Okay. And what was the energy around momhood in your community? It was definitely like the goal. I think most of us expected that we would get married and become mothers. Like, I mean, that was my goal for a long time. College was kind of a, an accident for me, but it was like, it was something to be praised. It was like, that was kind of, you know, the role, especially in, in more conservative evangelical circles. Like that's the ideal role to as- aspire to, I would say. And what does that role look like? What does the ideal mom look like? Is there a timeline to it? Is that mom married to a self-identifying man? Is the mom presenting as a particular kind of woman? Are a number of children desired? Is birth control involved? What does being an ideal mom look like? Or what did it look like for you when you were growing up? Right. It's definitely, definitely straight marriages and definitely women are not the head of the household. They have to submit to their husbands in general. So dads are considered like the spiritual leader of the family. You have to marry somebody who's at least as religious or more religious than you are so that they can lead your children into the right set of beliefs. Who has to marry the more religious one? The woman has to marry the the woman does. Yeah. Because the man holds the spiritual power. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, okay, I've got that, that image in my mind. And so we've got a straight, a straight marriage. The man has spiritual authority. The woman needs to really think about that in marrying whoever they're marrying. Mm-hmm. And then what happens? And I would say marriages tend to be younger simply because you're not supposed to have premarital sex. So people tend to get married younger, especially if you're not really looking for a long-term career on your own. Like kind of the goal is to get out of singlehood as quickly as possible. Um, But people do use birth control. It depends on the family. Like I knew some homeschool families that had like nine children or 10 children. And then there were some that only had one or two. So that there's a lot. So so birth control is allowed. It's, it's okay. Yeah. Abortion is not what birth control is. Okay. Got it. Do you know anyone in your community who did seek out an abortion? If they did, I wouldn't have heard about it simply because it's not something that's talked about. Okay. Can you imagine what might happen if that became known in the community or what might have happened to a person within your community who did have an abortion? Sort of what might they experience? I think there'd be a lot of shame. Definitely. I don't know. I think they would just probably try not to talk about it. I do know people who like had babies outside of marriage and some of them like got ostracized from their churches. So I imagine it would be a similar experience. And when you say it's common to get married young, what does young mean for you? Is there an average age? I think it totally depends on the family and also like socioeconomic class. My older brothers got married at 18 and 20. So I always pictured like the 19 to 21 range is kind of what I was anticipating. All right. So I think we've got a, a pretty good picture here. You you grew up you grew up thinking 
18 to 21 ish, you would get married, leave singledom, as you said, and and become a mom, marry a spiritual man within your faith. And did you have in your mind that you would continue to homeschool your own children? Yeah, I did. I, I mean, I couldn't really imagine anything different because I hadn't actually been to a public school aside from like the occasional class here or there. Okay. Did you think you would stay in New Hampshire? Yeah. Okay. So or then missionary that, work. Or where? Or like go overseas for missionary work. Ah, got it. Did you envision missionary work with a partner or prior to getting married or any, any, any way? I think I definitely imagined it with a partner because I couldn't imagine like settling down and doing life on my own in such a big way. Like my world had always completely revolved around my family. So the idea of going by myself to a foreign country sounded overwhelming. Okay. Did it sound overwhelming to go with a partner and children? No, I mean, I couldn't imagine my life without children at that point. Okay. So you had this vision for yourself and a little bit ago, you said that college was an accident. What does that mean? <laughs> so my junior year of college, I think I realized that I was not going to get married straight out of, or junior year of high school, I realized I was not going to get married straight out of high school because I wasn't in a serious relationship. And I didn't want to work like, you know, at, at McDonald's or something in my town. So I started looking at other options. And so I just did a bunch of research on different programs. I went to a, like a summer writing program in, at the University of Iowa and found that I loved like being in conversation with people from different backgrounds and getting to take classes with professors and eating out of dormitories and staying in a, in a dorm. So after that, I decided like I thought it was something I could do and I just applied and I wasn't really sure what I could get into or what exactly I would do when I got there, but I figured it was worth a shot. Okay. And so did you cast a wide net when you applied for college? I applied early decision to Colby knowing that it would help me get in and also that they were probably the only way I could afford to go to school because they pretty much give full financial aid to students that need it. But I had a whole backup list if I didn't get in that included community colleges and like local local colleges in the area. Okay. Wow. So it sounds like you really did your homework on this. Yeah. Um, I'm curious about what you said when you were at Iowa. Um, you said you really enjoyed talking with people from different backgrounds. Can you unpack what that was like for you? Did it ever feel threatening or was it just like you couldn't, it was just enriching and interesting and fascinating and you couldn't get enough of it or sort of like a mix? I think probably a mix. At the time I was struggling with anxiety and depression, so I didn't even know if I could make it the two-week program, but it actually ended up being a really positive thing for me. Like I had some anxious moments, but being in that kind of environment that was so stimulating and busy was really helpful for me. And I actually, my closest friends on the program, one of them was gay and one of them was bisexual and I'd never had friends who were not straight before. Um, and I spent a lot of time having conversations about like homosexuality and how evangelicals view it versus how other people view it. And realizing like, I don't know, it was just different to encounter people that I'd always had views about but hadn't known. So what, yeah, can you go into that? Was it scary to engage people that you had views about? I mean, did your views start to change at all? Or what was that like? Just even at the most basic affective level, what did you feel when you talked to these people? I felt like, you know, it was my responsibility to represent Christianity well. So I, I like represented it in the kindest and gentlest terms possible. 
but I also felt like, you know, I couldn't betray the Bible or God by backing down from the stance I had been taught. But I mean, those people totally accepted me, I think, because they thought I was the weird homeschool girl and they, they just rolled with it, you know, and I, I, I adored them. I really missed them after I left. Yeah, yeah. So I've been given growing up, you know, I, I was raised pretty Jewish, pretty culturally Jewish and within a synagogue, not like a a faith-based Jew, but very immersed in the Jewish tradition nonetheless. And I was sort of like fascinated by people of other backgrounds. And so I would go to church communities all the time. I mean, I was just always fascinated with Christianity and I would go to sacrament meetings and, you know, teen classes, even at 5 a.m. before school, I would go to these like Bible studies just because I was so interested. And what ended up happening a lot of the time was, not not always, but a lot of the time, my friends would uh, do the same thing as, as what it sounds like you just sort of like approach me and my interests with kindness and love and gentleness and also not want to discount their um what they view to be a primary role of their own christianity which was um to sort of like spread the word to spread their beliefs to do mission work in their own town in a way and so they would like gift me bibles and they would write these long notes about how they loved me and because they loved me and because they cared about me they really wanted me to read this collection of stories for what they thought it was and they really wanted me to join their communities out of what they deemed was the deepest form of love. Did you feel that at all when you were um, encountering these people for the first time? You know, you said you you talked to them with as much kindness about your background as you could, but you also didn't want to discount your own Christianity. Was there a part of you that wanted to bring them to your faith? Oh, definitely. That was always in the back of my mind with every relationship, I would say. And I've done stuff like that, like giving people Bibles with long notes and kind of funny to to hear you say that but yes absolutely that was always the goal like if i can represent christianity for what it truly is which is loving and kind and good then maybe they'll want to ask questions about it later you know even sometime in the future when they're struggling with x y or z in their life okay so i want to i definitely want to get to where you are now but i sort of just like want to build up and paint this picture right. so at the time you truly believed that the purest form of christianity was love and kindness. And the best oh, that- in your love was to bring people to Christianity. Right. What would you say to that person? So I guess we can sort of start to, to bring in like who you are now. What would you, what would you say to that person now? If you could talk to her, if you can have a conversation with her, because it sounds like she's coming from a very genuine place. So if you could somehow have a heart to heart with her, what might you say? That's the thing. Like, I mean, I I know so many people who still see Christianity that way, and I don't, like, feel necessarily the need to convince them out of it, because, I mean, like, obviously I disagree, but I'm not sure that my issue is with the, I don't know, like, if I were to talk to that girl, I think mostly what I would want to tell her is stop being so anxious about other people. Like, you don't have to feel like the weight of the world is on you to represent Christianity a certain way. That's just not your job. It's less, it would be less about changing her mind than about giving her freedom from this obligation that she felt. Do you think that was um, a large part of the anxiety you experienced growing up? 
Yeah, that was part of it. Uh, so I had obsessive compulsive disorder mm -hmm. and a lot of that swirled around around religious anxiety. So what that looked like for me is that I would have these fears like if I did something mildly wrong and didn't repent to my parents or didn't pray and ask God for forgiveness, then I would go to hell. And so I just had this constant running loop in my mind of like, I'm going to hell if I don't do this or if I accidentally do this thing or if I have this one bad thought, you know? Yeah. So a lot of it's rolled around that, around the anxiety around hell for me personally. And of course, I'm sure that exacerbated my need to help other people get out of hell, quote unquote. What did hell look like for you? I think, I mean, pretty much a place of like eternal torment, people weeping and grinding their teeth and fire, like that's probably the, the worst extent of it. Okay, and something that you can never get out of. Right, eternal torture. Eternal ever. Okay, that's that's a lot for a kid. <laughs> yeah. That's really scary. Do you remember, do you have any sort of, I don't know, memory or even if it's not all pieced together, but any sort of idea as to when you started to grapple with a concept of hell? I would say as early as six or seven, that was like something that kept me up at night regularly. Mm, that's hard. Yeah. And what about God? When did you start to have a conscious thought about a God? I'm, I can't remember not having conscious thoughts about God. I think I like officially converted to Christianity when I was four years old. So at least that young. <laughs> Okay, what did that look like, that conversion? I don't remember it at all, all, but my mom says, you know, I asked to pray and accept Jesus into my heart, and then after that, I was, like, slightly less naughty child, supposedly. Okay, okay. So, yeah, I'm wondering if we could sort of start to connect some threads here. What, and I want to get back to the topic of, of women, what was feminism thought to be, or what was, you know, the, the affect in and around feminism for your community growing up? I think feminism was kind of seen as like this angry liberal standpoint that was mostly advocating for abortion, which in my mind as a child, based on what I've been taught was like baby murder. Mm -hmm. So it was really pretty much not something you want to be called as a feminist. Okay. So what would it feel like if you were called a feminist? <laughs> it would feel like being associated with an entire group of people you really did not want to be associated with, like being a crazy liberal, being angry, being, yeah, being a baby killer. A baby killer. Okay. All right. So let's fast forward. You, you apply early decision to Colby. You're carrying all of this with you. You are struggling with anxiety and this need to help the world. Um, and you're just carrying so much on your young shoulders. What happens? I actually loved, I loved it right away simply because it had so much like life. Like I got to see so many people every day and do so many things, which was not true for homeschooling always. Like I spent a lot of time at home, um, which I think contributed to the anxiety. So for me, having space to be out of my head was actually a really positive thing. And then as the months wore on, it became harder and harder for me to know how to engage in the conversations that were happening on campus because I'd never been taught how to talk about race or gender or climate change because my family didn't believe in climate change. So anytime anything like evolution came up, climate change, any of those conversations, I just kept my mouth shut because I didn't want to offend anybody. 
I didn't know how to express what I was thinking without offending people. So, I mean, you're remarkably articulate. What and, and about talking about these hard issues, something must have happened between then and now. When did you start to talk about this? I mean, in little bits and pieces, like I had my few safe people freshman year who I could talk to. But really, I don't, I wouldn't even say today I'm totally comfortable talking about any of those things. But it's definitely gotten a lot better in the last year and a half, I would say. So it took a really long time. Okay. And did you avoid certain kinds of classes because these topics would come up? Oh, absolutely. I avoided classes on any of those issues like the plague because I just didn't know how to engage. And also because at the beginning I didn't believe in evolution, so why would I take a class on biology, you know? Mm -hmm. And would you take any of those classes if you could redo it? Yeah, I definitely would take those classes. I think I would try to ask more questions earlier on so I could have learned how to engage in those conversations, but I was so afraid to ask questions that would make me sound ignorant that I just didn't ask questions at all. That's hard. So you came in as creative writing major, is that right? I came in intending to be an English major with creative writing concentration, but then I ended up being a psych major for two years. Oh, wow. Okay. So how did you go from thinking you were going to do English with a concentration to psych to creative writing and also Jewish studies? What, what is that? Well, I think what happened is I, I realized, one, that I was more interested in creative writing than literature. And then my goal for a while was to write about mental illness in evangelical communities. So like the way that I experienced mental being a person with mental illness in evangelicalism obviously was not a positive one for many, many more reasons than the one, the story I described. So my goal was to be somebody who could write about psychology in a way that would help people who had been in similar situations to mine. Still have that, that goal at some point? I definitely still want to write for evangelical communities, but I think I'm probably going to approach it more from a theological angle than a, like a psychology of mental illness angle. That's part of the goal right now. And it's part of why I did Jewish studies is because it gave me the opportunity to study theology in a way that didn't feel quite so threatening as like critically studying my own religion. Ah, so there was some thought to choosing Jewish studies instead of religious studies. Yeah, I had taken a couple religious studies classes and I just, I got so overwhelmed by feeling like my faith was being attacked and like not, not that people were attacking me, but to me, I felt like I had to be defending it all the time that I couldn't handle it. So can you give some examples of what felt like an attack? I remember we watched, I took an intro to Christianity class and we watched a video on like creationism and the, the video was very much mocking anybody who believed in, in creationism. You know, it was like pseudoscience. And I just remember at the end feeling so worked up and like, I have to explain what I believe to these people and defend the God of the Bible, but like, I don't know how. I'm not well-versed enough on the other side to do that well. What do you think you would feel watching that same video now? I would agree with it. What happened? Well, we've got, you know, it sounds like just a few years and a lot of things shifted for you. Is there any sort of narrative that you've put together to make sense of, you know, where you were and, and where you are? Yeah, I mean, it was... A long process with a lot of different turning points. One of the biggest ones was being in Israel during study abroad, just like being another around another religious group all the time and realizing how people felt about Christians and feeling like, you know, they were afraid that I was going to try to convert them all the time in every conversation. And, and just becoming aware of my own beliefs about like 
Like I remember going to Yad Vashem, which is the Israeli Holocaust Museum, and realizing suddenly that my belief system placed these people who had died in the Holocaust in like a flaming hell for all eternity. And I couldn't, I couldn't deal with that anymore. So that was a big turning point. And I also did a lot of research on American evangelicalism and just became so disillusioned with the whole movement, like the anti-science and anti-academic approach. But basically, I think my trust shifted and what institutions I put my trust in. And as soon as I no longer trusted evangelical authorities, like I trusted the intellectual authorities instead. I mean, it's interesting that you're naming your trip to Israel because that was just a year ago, right? Yeah. So a lot changed for you just in the past year, it sounds like. Yeah, it's pretty much all been the past year. How has the year felt? Has it been powerful, overwhelming, confusing, sad? (laughs) Every time I think about the last year, I want to (laughs) cry. I think it like, you know, it was like the hardest year of my life, you know? Like, I don't think it wasn't worth it, but I just remember at so many points, like feeling like I was losing my community or betraying God, betraying my faith, you know, going to go to hell for the things I was thinking or doing, you know, had some anxious breakdowns. It was a really long process. Yeah. Did some of your OCD come out more through the past year and, and wrestling with the, the newness and, and sort of like stepping away from what you thought gave you life for so long? Definitely the anxiety has. I don't know if I could label it as OCD anymore because it doesn't have the compulsive behaviors, but I always felt like I was battling voices that were telling me like, you're going off the right path, you're walking away from God, and and feeling like in the process I didn't know how to communicate with my community or my friends or my family or my church anymore because I felt like I didn't want to tear down what they believed, but I also needed to sort through these things and I was afraid they were going to try to convince me to come back or just see it as momentary doubt where in my mind it wasn't momentary doubt, it was like my entire worldview was shifting. And so who did you reach out to? Mostly faculty and professors in the Jewish Studies Department, yeah, and also the Office of Religious and Spiritual Life. Okay, and did you, do you feel like you got the support that you needed during that time? Yeah, I mean, I don't think anybody could have made the process much easier for me because it was something I had to sort through for myself, but I had a lot of people who loved me and were willing to have those conversations, which I really appreciate. Especially as people who weren't, you know, weren't even Christian or related to Christianity at all, to have that kind of support was amazing. I mean, you're graduating, you know, with these majors and minors. I mean, and I know that you're going into seminary um, at Princeton. Would you, you know, say you, you have another year or two, what are the types of classes you would really want to take at Colby if you had more time? That's a good question. I think... Mostly the stuff I said, like I would love to take a class on women's studies and on um, race in the United States and on climate change. Like I'm taking one on climate change this semester and it's been very stretching and growing for me because I just like I don't have the same basis of information as a lot of the other students do. So I think those are the kinds of classes I would take and maybe some philosophy. So what then, I mean, going back to the, the topic of this podcast, what, what do you feel now about the term feminism? Does it feel like a hit if one were to question if you were a feminist? I think if somebody in my community back home like asked or said I, said I sounded like a feminist now, I would know they meant it as an, 
not a positive thing, but to me it very much feels like a positive thing. Like I would consider myself a feminist at this point because I see a lot of the sexism that exists in, in Christianity today and in my upbringing and I feel like it needs to be called out and stood up against, you know? So do you feel any of the same drives that you used to have towards non-Christians to, you know, towards those within your former community? You know, like, do you feel this, like, say someone within your former community said, you know what, Tori, you're really sounding like a feminist. And you know that they're carrying all sorts of ideas um, and negativities, you know, when they say that. Do you feel a drive to push back, talk to them, open their eyes to feminism in the way that you once wanted to open the eyes of non-Christians to your form of Christianity? I would say yes, that that does exist. I think also I feel like I'm still so much in the beginning, the front end of like learning about these things that I don't think I could make a case well. So I haven't really had a lot of those conversations. Mm-hmm. And and also all of this has been so recent that I'm still learning to like, how do I how do I open up to somebody and tell them that I've changed in this way? Like that's that's a hard conversation to have in the first place. Yeah, yeah. Can you name some of the the things that you do find now to be sexist in your former community? Yeah, I mean, some of the things we talked about in terms of marriage roles, that's a big one. Like women not being allowed to be in leadership, religious leadership roles, women not being allowed to be pastors. I'm frustrated that I had to get over that image in my mind. Like I could not picture what a woman pastor would be like, and yet this is the career I'm pursuing, you know? And it was really hard for me to make that choice to even say that was what I wanted to do because I just couldn't imagine that being allowed. What were some of, I mean, did you have any internal struggles about women's worth with regards to having a leadership role when you were thinking about pursuing seminary? I don't know if it was necessarily worth so much that was concerning to me in terms of being a pastor. Like I definitely had a lot of insecurity, I think, just from feeling like I was often seen as silly or emotional or too sensitive because of being a woman. But I think mostly I just didn't know if I could be a pastor and still be like obedient to God's word, you know? Mm -hmm. And now my perception of the Bible has changed so dramatically that that's not really a concern anymore. But there's always that voice in the back of my mind saying, you know, Tori, you're, you're going off the right path. And so what what does the Bible look like to you now? I mean, I think the more I've done religious studies and, and Jewish studies, the more I've seen like it's a collection of works from different periods of history and different different authors, obviously, that have it's been redacted. And, you know, so I think there's there's lots of contradictions and a plurality of voices in the Bible. And so I don't know that there's always one clear authorita- authoritative answer or interpretation. So I'm still wrestling with what it means to be in terms of what I believe, but I definitely have a much less strict relationship with it than I used to have. Did plurality used to scare you? Oh, for sure. Everything had to be black and white. You know, there was a right answer and a wrong answer. There was one right way to do Christianity, and that was the way we were doing it. And if you were doing it differently, you were doing it wrong. And what does plurality feel like to you now? I think it means there's room for us to have conversations in our tradition, like we're probably never going to know what the right answer is, but that's less important than the ability to talk across lines of difference and grow and be shaped by each other's experiences and viewpoints. What are your conversations like at the moment with your family of origin? Are you in conversation with them? Are you, um, you know, on good terms? Do they know about your shift in ideology? We're on, we're on good terms. They're hard conversations to have. You know, I think it's, been hard for my parents especially to process me changing so much and I think there's a sense maybe feeling like 
I think now that they were bad parents or they raised me the wrong way, which, you know, obviously I think they were great parents. I don't agree with the ideological community. And so separating that the ideology from the person has been a hard thing in some of those conversations. And I think it also has a role in the greater political dialogue. Like that's the main tension right now, just in terms of like this Trump era, how divided things are. Me becoming left wing with them still being right wing, I think has been almost more of an area of tension than the religious stuff. Mm, got it. Because because you still, I mean, you still identify as Christian, just not evangelical in the way that you once did. Is that correct? Yeah. So you're, are you home now? I am home. Yeah. You know, yeah. Because we're, you know, we would have done this interview on Colby's campus in their recording studio and we're, you know, in the midst of this COVID pandemic. So what is it like right now, given the politics in the air and given the politics of this pandemic, you know, having to rush back home prior to graduation, you're with your family, you've gone through this, this year of change and also we are in this particular political moment and health crisis. It was challenging. I, I mean, like I said, all of this was so recent that I've, I very much feel like I've kind of deconstructed all of the things that my world was built on and now I'm trying to rebuild. And so this semester was already really hard for me. The school year was already really hard for me. So getting sent home in the middle of it felt like you know, I was just starting to get a handle on things. I was just starting to rebuild. And now I have to go home and try to rebuild from home, which is a very different environment. And yeah, it's been hard to navigate. Like, I think we have different sources that we read now in terms of the news and in terms of how strongly we feel about the pandemic. So that's been a question of like, whose authority do we trust in this pandemic and the situation? That's created some hard conversations and some tension. So can you give an example of, you know, what that conversation might look like or how those conversations have looked with regards to, you know, what do we read? Who do we trust? Who has authority here? Right. I mean, some of the conversations have been like, oh, the media is overblowing it. It's not such a, a big deal as people are making it out to be. We can still maybe keep our business open or see a few friends. And for me, I felt like, no, like everybody in my Colby world is now going home and shutting down and not seeing anybody. And of course, you know, I'm reading like New York Times and they're reading maybe Fox. So it's just, it's a difference in, in how we would handle very day-to-day -day occurrences. At this point, we're all pretty much on the same page. So that's, that's good. I think everybody's realizing this is, we're in it for the long haul at this point. And has faith played a role in thoughts about the current pandemic? I don't know if it has so much for my family, but I've definitely seen a lot of evangelical people online talking about like, how, how it's being overblown by the media and also like, you know, we should have faith and like we have victory in Christ and all this stuff, praying for healing and like all of those things, you know, you can believe them, but also we have to take this seriously. You know, it's a, a both and kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's interesting. It sounds like you're, you're exposed more to, you know, those saying, you know, we could, we could win through, through Christ and we need to pray. Are you seeing any talk about, you know, yes, we, we will be okay through Christ, but this is the end of times. And so we need to hold on to Christ so that we will be saved in the end of times. Are you seeing any sort of conversation about this pointing to, you know, an end of days? Yeah, I've seen a few posts, not a ton, but a few that are like, you know, this is the sign of the times, like we're coming to a close now, which okay, but is crazy for me. Do you, can you imagine what, you know, say, say this was two years ago, can you imagine what the pandemic might feel like to you? 
would it be different? Would it be, you know, the same for you now? Sort of what might your relationship with what's happening look like? I think, I mean, in the sense that I wasn't really reading the news two years ago because I didn't trust it. I think I probably would take it less seriously than I'm, I'm taking it now. But I think also having been exposed to like the Colby environment and seeing how, how quickly they shut down, like I would have understood that it was something to take seriously. So I think it totally depends on your proximity to certain communities and like whether you were forced to go home from work or you had the choice whether or not to stay. I think all those things influence it too. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So you spoke about growing up and having this vision of your life that is now playing out to be quite different. Do you have a vision, a sort of five-year vision or uh, that, that is new, or are you kind of just taking it week by week at this point? Both and, I think. Like, the official, official five-year plan is that in three years I'll be out of divinity school and I'll be ordained, and then I can work in a church and also... I'm hoping to write theological articles for lay audiences about issues around gender and race and social justice and and those kinds of things. But part of me is still very much like it feels up in the air because I haven't totally settled on what I believe. And I'm I'm figuring that out as I go. And, And you picked Princeton for your seminary learning, right? I did, yeah. So can you just share, you know, a little bit why, why did you pick Princeton? Because you got to choose. I mean, I, we should let our, our listeners know that, you know, like this, this is a very different experience from your applying to college. You had options and you chose for yourself Princeton. I had incredible offers from incredible schools. And it, honestly, part of it was I wanted to be in New England and driving distance of home. But honestly, it was mostly because of their community. Like everybody I spoke to seemed so invested in community building there. They have they have a residential community and they, it just sounded like a family. And the other schools that I had visited didn't feel like a family in the same way. And so I'm, I'm nervous about Princeton because I think it's more explicitly religious in a lot of ways than some of the other schools. But I also feel like I would really love to be in a community that would shape me where I would get to have hard interactions, maybe with people who are more conservative or more liberal than I am and, and be willing to change because of that. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's interesting that you said you're, you're afraid that it's too religious. Could like, do you ever imagine having said that sentence before? (laughs) Yes and no. Like religion has always given me so much anxiety that religious spaces have always been hard for me. Um, But seeing a space as too Christian and then, and being scared of that, that's a little bit, it's a new, a new twist on the same very, the same thing. Uh Yeah, yeah. Um, It would be really interesting to have you back in a year, you know, to see where you're at. Because I mean, I I really appreciate how open and honest and vulnerable you're being about human growth and human change. It's not an overnight process. It is very difficult. It's, you know, a mix of a lot of feelings and a lot of both ands, as you've been saying. And you know, you're really in the middle of something big for you. And it would be really great, you know, if you're open to it, to coming back or hopefully, you know, school resumes and and you'll be at Princeton um, in person in the fall. And, you know, it'd be really great to have you back and talk to you after you have a couple semesters of of seminary life in your pocket. Yeah, Yeah, I would love that. And maybe I'll have more answers by then about what I actually think. Or less, you know, I mean, sometimes the, the, the more you learn, the less 
you feel like you know, and that that's okay. I mean, I I know you're saying, you know, maybe you'll have more answers and, and that's great if you do, but I also want to just take the time to commend you that sometimes, and oftentimes, I mean, I think, I think it takes a lot of courage to say that you don't know something and a lot of self-awareness to be able to say, you know what, I don't have an answer for that. And so it's an interesting dynamic that you and I have right now because you're graduating so you're and you're not currently my student. So we've sort of transitioned from professor-student relationship to something beyond that. But you still have been my student. And so I just want to say I'm so incredibly proud of how honest you are and how articulate you are and how brave you are to be really thinking through these hard conversations and being open to not knowing some things. I know it's a challenge, but I, I think that you're doing tremendous work. So I just want to, you know, sort of publicly say that and, and let you know that I'm, I'm so deeply proud of you. Thank you. And, and thank you for being part of that journey. Like I've really appreciated our conversations and, and you helping me through this probably in more ways than you realize. I mean, you've helped me as well. I love being in class with students who ask such profound, hard questions. So Tori, thank you so much for being here. I'm thrilled for you. I'm proud of you. I cannot wait to see what happens for you at Princeton and beyond. And I really hope that you come back and, and we can have another conversation about, about where you're going. Thank you, Sarah. I look forward to it. Thank you for listening to Feminist Talk Religion, a Feminist Studies and Religion Forum branch project. Feminist Studies and Religion works to center and connect feminists and religious studies through its various platforms, including a journal, books, blog, and forum. We appreciate your engagement with FSR's branches, especially with the forum's podcast, and would love your financial support. You can donate at www.fsrinc.org donate. That's www.fsrinc.org donate. We wish to express our thanks to all who have contributed to the Feminist Talk Religion podcast. Special appreciation goes to Oluwatumisin Oridane, Sarah Emanuel, Midori Hartman, and Susan Wooliver for their leadership and committee efforts. Thanks goes to Sydney Keplin for her editorial work, Thomas Lejoie and Scott Jackson for creating the music used for this podcast, and Kimmy Monty, Christy Cobb, and Owen Cobb for their creative work on the intro dialogue. Thanks also goes to the interns of Feminist Studies and Religion, Inc. for their work on promoting this project.